let's talk about our Lord again tonight in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to uh, go through Mark chapter 2. We, we already went through part of this chapter, and then go into Mark chapter 3 for just a few verses and see something here. Why don't we read the Scripture, and then we'll have prayer, and then we'll talk about it tonight. So Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. And he, that is Jesus, went forth again by the seaside. And all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, that is in Levi's house, Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with publicans and sinners, they said unto him, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician. But they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and they say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bridegroom of the, uh, um, of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filleth it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles." And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. And his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need? And was hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests, and gave also to them that were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue. And there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, that's the Pharisees, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored whole as the other. 
in our last verse, and the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. How they might destroy him. This, in these, this section of the scriptures that we've read, we're going to talk tonight uh, for just a little bit about opposition. Our Lord and the opposition that he faced. And right here in the book of Mark, we have boom, 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 three or four accounts right in a row of the opposition. Let's have Lord, we just pray now that you'll help us in this passage. God, I pray that you'll show us the things that you would have us to see here tonight. Lord, we pray that your spirit, we claim the promises, Lord, of the Bible, that it is your spirit that leads us and guides us into truth. <clears throat> and we pray tonight as your people, as your church, that, Lord, we will be guided into all truth, that, Lord, we would see uh, our Lord in these passages and his response. We would see the Pharisees, Lord, we would see all of this. And then, Lord, we would be able to make application to our own lives and hearts. God, we just lift it up to you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus' ministry is in full swing now. Um, again, Mark is a very fast-paced gospel record. Things happen quick. Matter of fact, I heard somebody say the other day that in the gospel of Mark, in every single chapter, there's large crowds except for two chapters. At some point in every chapter, there's large crowds, except for two chapters. And the stories just keep rolling. And, and here in just these few verses that we read tonight, we have four or five different accounts of Christ. And a theme going on here in this section of the opposition that Jesus is facing. The servant son of God, Jesus Christ, is gathering his disciples around him. He's followed by throngs of people doing things that people have never seen before. We've never seen anything like this, they're saying. Um, he's performing great miracles right in front of their faces, before their eyes, to see who he is. He's preaching the everlasting word. We saw that last week. He's preaching the good news of the gospel, the kingdom uh, that of God that has come. And throughout his ministry, we see in these gospel records that he is having constant opposition. Now, it's interesting to note who the opposition comes from, isn't it, in these passages, at least what's recorded. We don't see Jesus facing opposition from the Hollywood crowd. Now, again, I told the teens this morning um, that they didn't have the Hollywood crowd back then, but in some ways, I'm sure they did, right? Uh, but his main opposition didn't come from those types, the sinful crowd, the, the, uh, uh, those down in the gutter of sin. As a matter of fact, we'll see Jesus, he's right there with them, ministering to those. Where was his opposition coming from? Even in these accounts that we read here, it was coming from the religious crowd, from the Pharisees and from the scribes and the Sadducees, and then we see the Herodians in chapter 3. In the account that we had last week before our candlelight service, we saw the paralytic man, or the man with the palsy. And the scribes reasoning in their minds at that point concerning Christ, when he proclaims to the man, the man comes in, and uh, well, comes down through the roof, and is laid before Jesus, and, and everybody's watching what Jesus is going to do, and Jesus says something completely unexpected when he says, Son, thy sins be forgiven. <laughs> wow. Again, we bypass these things, don't we? We've heard them all of our lives. We've heard these stories in Sunday school. 
But for a man to tell another man that he's forgiving him of his sins is lacking, to say the least, unless the man can really do it. Unless the man is God himself. Because only God, and that's what the scribes were thinking in their own minds, only God can forgive sins. Amen to that. And so their question was a good question. Who, who does he think he is? Um, so they're reasoning in their minds, and then Jesus proves to them that he can forgive sins by showing them something visible in front of their faces that he can actually heal this man of being paralyzed. And he says, what's easier to say? That your sins are forgiven or tell the paralyzed man, who everybody knows is paralyzed, to get up and walk? Well, it's easy to say, thy sins be forgiven. But to prove that I have the power to forgive this man's sins, get up and walk. And the man does. He gets up in front of all of their eyes and walks. Both of them great miracles. The greater miracle is the forgiveness of sins. But yet both of them are very great miracles. And so the scribes are reasoning in their minds, who, what, who, who is this? What's he saying? Forgive you of your sins. Who's he claiming to be? Well, after that event takes place, Mark then records four occasions where the opposition against Jesus is seen growing. And that's the, the section of Scripture we just read through. Uh, and we're going to go back through all four of those again tonight. But the climax happening in our last verse in chapter 3 and verse 6, when they have the council among themselves, the Pharisees and the Herodians, which if you study history, these weren't two groups of people who got along very well at all. Um, that's kind of like saying the Republicans and the Democrats got together and worked together to get something done, right? Even worse, <laughs> if you can imagine that. The Herodians are politically for Herod. They're for the Roman government to stay together so that Herod can retain his power. The Pharisees are against the Roman government. They want to see it destroyed. But yet these two, in their hatred of Jesus Christ, come together to try to destroy him. And that's where this leads us to in verse 6. So we see him eating and drinking with sinners. We see him, his disciples not fasting. We see his disciples doing not what is lawful on the Sabbath day, and then we see them watching him as they accuse him. So let's take this and break it apart tonight. Number one on the first occasion, verses 13 through 17, we see the first occasion of their accusation against him and their criticism is the call of Levi or Matthew and the meal that followed. And we're not going to take the time tonight to read through all these passages again for time's sake, but you know the story. Chapter uh, 2, verses 13 through 17, Jesus is passing along. In verse 14, he sees this tax collector, um, this publican, sitting at the place of the toll. He's in his office outside working. He's where he, he's, he always is every day collecting taxes for the Roman government from his own people, keeping a portion from himself for himself. And we know that we're taught from history and from Scripture, these men were thieves. They were just allowed to do whatever they wanted to do, to take from the, the people, and, and the Jewish people hated, despised these publicans because they were traitors. They were seen as traitors and, and uh, uh, turning against even their own people for their own welfare, for their own sake. Zacchaeus is another famous publican in the Scriptures. And here's this publican, and we can see why they would be hated so much, can't we? Here's this publican sitting here, Matthew, in his tax booth, and Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. Isn't it amazing who Jesus goes to 
who he chooses, who he, who he calls into himself and those who actually will follow him. He says to Matthew, he says to Levi, the, the publican, follow me. And Matthew apparently accepts the invitation and he does so. And he follows Jesus Christ. And then in verse 15, we see that there seems, it seems like Matthew gathers together his friends, other publicans, other sinners, um, a number of his people he gathers together. The Bible says many and has a meal that he, that he puts together so that these others can meet Jesus as well. And here's this large number, this many publicans and sinners, old friends of Matthew, sitting together with Jesus and his disciples. These people to the Pharisees, to many of the nation, are a disgusting crowd. This is not some, some group you would want to have a photo taken with. This is not some group that you'd be proud of walking along with or being friends of in that day and in that culture. And if you were seen with them, the religious and political leaders of that day would look down on you um, because this was a disgusting crowd to be a part of. These sinners, these um, tax collectors. So the criticism in this first occasion is the charge of the Pharisees is Jesus has defiled himself. He's defiled himself by gathering together with this sinful crowd. Why he eats and he drinks with sinners. He's careless about morality. Moral carelessness. Now we talked about this some weeks ago on a Sunday morning. Um, but that's the criticism. Now we do, again, it's, it's good for us to recognize the dilemma that these Jews were in. Right? And we knew, do need to remember that some of these Pharisees turned to Christ. I believe Nicodemus came to Jesus Christ as he was inquiring, what does it mean to be born again? And Jesus was explaining it to him. Aren't you glad some of the Pharisees came to Christ? Some of the scribes and the religious leaders. And I, th I hope and think many of them after the resurrection began to have their eyes open to those Old Testament prophecies. But this is who is accusing him. And the difficulty that they would have is that the actions of Jesus do look very strange, right? This is very odd that, that we have this law and these are sinners and Jesus truly has made himself the friend of sinners. And something doesn't look right. According to everything that they've been taught, this is defiling. This is defiling. So that's the accusation. Now, these aren't angels and, I, and, and we all know that. These are wicked men. Look at chapter 3, verse 6, right? As we read a minute ago, they're get, they, they, at this point, they already want to kill him. They're a bunch of murderers. They don't see themselves that way, but that is what they're facing. Okay, second occasion, number two. That's in verses 18 through 22 that we read a minute ago. So the first occasion, they accuse him of eating and drinking with sinners. We're going to go back to these again in a minute, but let's lay out the accusations first. The second occasion... Uh, this was apparently the observance of some fast, some fast day that was going on. And very likely, we all understand the Pharisees, the scribes, these religious leaders, they had come up with all kinds of things that, that God had never established in the Old Testament that were not really part of the law that God had given, but they had added to it and added to it and put burdens upon men that God never intended for them to have. And, and maybe that's what this occasion is. But anyhow, it's a fast it's a fast day that, that they're observing, and it appears that while the disciples of John and the disciples of 
the Pharisees were observing this fast. The disciples of Jesus aren't observing the fast. And they're criticizing him. They charged him and his disciples with an absence of seriousness and being proper during a lawful fast, they would say. These were showing joyfulness and happiness while everyone else is wearing sackcloth and ashes, not eating, giving up food so that they can show the seriousness of what they're doing. They're accusing Jesus of feasting instead of fasting. Your disciples, Jesus, do not fast. They have a lack of seriousness here. So that's the second occasion of their criticism. The third occasion that we read a minute ago. What happened there? Uh, that's verses 23 through 28. In this instance, this takes place in a cornfield. The Jesus, Jesus and the disciples are walking through a cornfield, and it's said that they would pluck the corn. And, and we know from history that they would rub the ears of corn in their hands, and the Pharisees had all these laws on the Sabbath day. You could only walk a certain amount of steps. You couldn't rub corn in your hand to get the grain off to eat it. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. Uh, You could only go outside at a certain time of day. All these rules and regulations. And yet, here comes Jesus. You know, Jesus kind of looked like a rebel, didn't he? In some ways. He kind of looked like a rebel. What are you doing, Jesus? And and, and here he is going through the field, and his disciples are eating corn. So what's the criticism? Well, they charged him with, uh, and his disciples, with an absence of seriousness and an absence of being proper. These were showing joyfulness and happiness. They, they charged him with allowing his disciples to do secular things on a sacred day. Your disciples do not do what is lawful on the Sabbath day. And we're going to come back to this. They put no difference between the sacred and the secular. What's going on, Jesus? And then number four, the last one there, is in chapter three, beginning with verse one. And it's again the Sabbath day, another Sabbath day, in the synagogue. And there's a man who has the withered hand. And this, in this criticism, there's nothing that's said, but silently are watching him. Knowing there's a man with a withered hand. And just watching him to see what he's going to do. Is he going to heal this man on the Sabbath day? Because they wanted a reason to accuse him. Um, And so they're watching him. And those are the four occasions. And then again, at the end of this incident, we see these two political, religious and political parties coming together to discuss amongst themselves how they might destroy him. So moral carelessness, Jesus, lack of seriousness, putting no difference between the sacred and the secular, and then silently watching him so that they can have some cause to accuse him and destroy him with. So let's go back through these again in the time that we have left, and let's see how Christ responded. What was Jesus' response to these four occasions? First of all, we see the moral carelessness that they accused him of. How Christ responds to the opposition. Number one, moral carelessness. Verses 13 through 17. Moral carelessness. Jesus, you eat. And you're fellowshipping with with sinners. You're a friend of sinners. Isn't it interesting that, and and by the way, aren't we glad Jesus is a friend of sinners? And that's what he came to do and came to be. 
Verse 17 in that passage, let's read that one again. When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are what? Sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Something interesting to notice here is that Jesus admitted that these people were sick, didn't he? He's saying, I came to take care of, to help those that are sick. And then Jesus confesses that, or at least it's insinuated here, that who's the physician that's going to help the sick people? Well, he is. He's the physician. They are the sick people. Jesus is not having moral carelessness. They have need of a physician. Jesus had come with the healing power of the physician, of the doctor, something the Pharisees could not do, something the law of the Old Testament could not do. Now, the law of the Old Testament points out our sin, doesn't it? It's like having that report from the doctor that comes and describes what's wrong. But there's no healing there. We, We need the message that we're sick. Amen? We need to have the report from the doctor that that you have a heart problem. We need to have that information that there's something wrong with you. But we don't just want to get left there, do we? And that's the job of the Pharisee. That's the job of the law. That's the job of the prophets. But then Jesus comes along. And he's the doctor. Here's your problem. Jesus has the cure. Jesus has the answer for those who are sick. Now, who in this story is sick? Well, the sinners are sick. Matthew is sick. All Matthew's good old friends are sick. He's been stealing money from people for years and years. The prostitutes are sick. The Hollywood crowd is sick. The homosexuals are sick. They need healing. And the Pharisees, who didn't know it, who were giving Jesus the great opposition, are sick. But they don't realize it. They don't see it. So, is Jesus being moral, being careless in his morality? Well, no. He has come into contact with sinners so that he may heal them. So that he may help them. No Pharisee is going to go die for the sins of these people. Jesus is. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and die for their sins. The great physician has come to truly take care of the sin problem. No Old Testament law. No sacrifices can forgive sins. All of that is shadows and types and symbols of the Savior, of the Messiah who was now present among them, among us. Emmanuel, God with us, has come. Jesus has come to call who? Oh, not the righteous. But sinners to what? Repentance. Sinners to repentance. Those who know that they need help. Those dirty street sinners and those cleaned up Pharisees, those sinners, to repentance. Jesus is, yes, Jesus is the friend of sinners. I love this hymn. I just thought I'd put it up on the screen. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Our pastor said it this morning, didn't he? You can't appreciate the grace of God. You can't appreciate Christmas like you should until you really realize how sinful we all are. How sinful I am. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me what? 
Oh, hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, and keeping, and loving. He's with me to the end. Jesus, I do now receive Him. This is the last verse of the hymn. More than all in Him I find. He hath granted me what? Forgiveness. It's the same forgiveness that He granted Matthew, the tax collector, and Zacchaeus in the tree. The same forgiveness that He granted to Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons possessed by. He's granted me forgiveness. The same forgiveness that He gave to Nicodemus, self-righteous Pharisee. I am His and He is mine. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So glad tonight that he's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. Does he excuse sin? Oh my, no. Does he have a lighter view of sin than those Pharisees? Why, those Pharisees hated sin, didn't they? Why, those Pharisees wouldn't be caught dead with a sinner. So did he have a lighter view of sin? Oh my. As we said a minute ago, no Pharisees going to the cross. Jesus is going to the cross. Oh, Jesus didn't have a light view of sin at all. Sinners today who do not come to Christ go to an eternal hell. The Bible teaches us that very plainly in Scripture. If you, if you believe the Bible and you believe what it says about heaven and you believe what it says about Jesus, then you have only one choice to believe it about hell. God does not take sin lightly at all. Jesus is in no way does He have moral carelessness. He came to pay the penalty. He came to pay for those wicked, terrible sins. I hope you've received this Savior. I hope you haven't come through Christmas Knowing this story, isn't it sad to think that so many people go through so many Christmases, even self-righteous church members, who, and they never have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ for their own sin. Their own sin. What about you and me tonight? Oh, I'm so thankful we have a Savior who's a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. Before we move forward here, <clears throat> are we ever charged with moral carelessness because we are befriend, befriending sinners? You know, as a growing up in the church, growing up in Christianity, how privileged I am. I, and I don't take that lightly to have the upbringing that I have. But isn't it easy as a Christian to become quite aloof to sinning men and women? Right, uh, we want to stay clean. We, we we don't want to have to go deal with that or talk to them or or have care and concern. We would never think that or say that, but but isn't it easy to become like a Pharisee in our own lives? When's the last time someone's accused us and said you're a friend of sinners in a negative way? You you you're morally careless. Now we want to be careful, right? We don't want to do something foolish and stupid, but that's not usually an accusation that we get, is it? Maybe God can help us to see that He's still a friend of sinners. He still can take that homosexual. And the truth can go to that man or that woman, and they can become washed just like He washed me. Amen? He still is the one who wants us to go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. But we build our sanctuaries, and we have our programs, and we do all these things. And then we put a message out, hey, come over here. Come over here and join us. But you know what happens most of the time? They don't usually come, do they? <laughs> we got to go out and get them. 
We, we've got to take this gospel message out to this community with us. We've got to take it out into the workplace. We've got to take it out in the home. We've got to take it out in the schools. And we've got to become friends of sinners, just as Jesus was a friend to this sinner. Praise God that he is. Number two. So number one, Jesus, you're morally careless. Number two, Jesus, your disciples, you all lack seriousness here about sin and about the things of God. Christ and his disciples, they're not wrapped in sackcloth and ashes. They're not fasting like we are. <clears throat> they're not abstaining from food and giving these things up. Christ is being charged with not realizing the seriousness of life. <laughs> Not realizing the seriousness of sin. Now what does Jesus say? Let's go ahead. It's been a little while since we read this now. Let's read through this. Verse 18. Let's pick it up at verse 18. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and they say unto him, Why do the Pharisees of John or the Pharisee, I'm sorry, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And John said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filleth it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse, and no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles. And the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. New wine must be put into new bottles." Jesus uses here the illustration of a wedding. He speaks of himself as the bridegroom. And again, we need to remember that when Jesus would say things to these Pharisees and scribes and the people of that day, many of them picked up on what he was saying. The bridegroom is an illustration in the Old Testament often referred to the Messiah. The bridegroom in the Psalms, the bridegroom in the Song of Solomon, the bridegroom, they would have known when he used this illustration of the bridegroom what he was claiming. In that culture, before a wedding, for seven days, all the friends of the bridegroom were full of joy and happiness, with laughter and songs and gladness. Jesus didn't deny the charge of the Pharisees that he wasn't fasting. He admitted. What did he say? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. This isn't a time for fasting. This isn't a time for sackcloth and ashes. This is a time for feasting. The Messiah is here. But the days were coming when the groom would be taken away. Now, if you study this, the idea behind what Jesus is saying here is a violent tragedy was going to take place. Something was going to happen to cause sorrow. Did anything like that happen with these disciples some days later? Oh my, the cross came, didn't it? And in those days, in those dark days, the disciples will fast. There's coming that time. John's disciples were in mourning. Their master had been taken. Herod, we know, beheads him. Jesus' suffering and death would be a sorrowful time for these disciples. But their sadness and their fasting wasn't going to last very long. You see, the bridegroom has come. <laughs> the Messiah is here. I, when I look at this passage, these Pharisees, the, the, in the Old Testament those days of fasting, those days of sackcloth and ashes, it's over. Something new has come. Jesus is trying to explain this often throughout these Gospels. 
The days of fasting are over. Jesus uses a piece of cloth and wineskins as illustrations. The new cloth cannot be put into old cloth. It shrinks. It'll tear it. New wine cannot be put into old skins. It'll burst them. The new has to go with the new. The the old has to stay with the old. You can't combine the two. Many have tried to do that. Over The Jews tried to do that very first thing when Christ ascended into heaven and the Jews tried to bring the, the grace of God with the law of God, bringing all these things together. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's all transition time, isn't it? The Messiah has come. Jesus Christ has come to initiate an entirely new order. A new religious life. G. Campbell Morgan says, a new experience which would make necessary new methods of expression. Instead of the fast, the feast. Instead of sackcloth, the purple robe. Instead of perpetual solemn and sadness, an abiding and enduring gladness and joy. Following a brief time of sadness, there's coming for all men the abiding joy of gladness and song. The necessity for sackcloth forever pass away. Be changed to purple royalty. The eternal feast would begin. So here's a thought. What about us? Why those Christians are so joyful. So full of joy. They're always so happy. that Even in trials and problems, they're always so joyful. Or do we get accused of that very much? We should, right? Maybe God can help us to learn that even in our hard circumstances, God, give me the joy of the Lord in my life. Help that joy to be evident in me. Is that my testimony or does the devil do a good job of stealing my joy? A missionary coming back home <clears throat> to London from Africa, someone asked him what was some of the strangest things you saw coming back from all that for so long. And his answer was the fact that London had lost its smile. I stood on the bridges and walked along the thoroughfares. I looked at the hurrying peoples and they all looked so sad. Can this not also be true of us as the church? God's people ought to be the most joyful people in this world. That ought to be part of the light of the glorious gospel shining to a lost world. Walk through Walmart later tonight. People aren't happy. They're not happy at all. If you've catch somebody with a smile, it's a rare thing, isn't it? It really is like a beam of light. It's just kind of in the darkness. You know, we ought to have the joy of the Lord on our hearts. These Pharisees said, why you lack seriousness? You ought to be mourning. Oh, no, no, It's not time for mourning. God's people ought to be the most joyful people in this world. Do we have problems? Yes, we do. Do we have struggles? You better believe we do. Is Jesus Christ the answer or is he not? Are we living for his glory? Do we believe all things work together for his glory? Good and for His glory and our good. By faith, we can have joy in the heart of circumstances, and God can use that in ways we may never know. The joy of the Lord. <clears throat> the joy of the Lord is our strength, is it not? Let's do one more tonight, and we'll be done. We'll pick up on the fourth one next week. So, a moral carelessness accusation, and then the accusation of a lack of seriousness. And then number three, the failure to distinguish between the sacred and the secular. The failure to distinguish between the sacred and the secular. Why do your disciples on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? Plucking the corn 
rubbing it in their hands to eat. Now, that wasn't wrong in and of itself. That wasn't sinful in and of itself. But the complaint was Jesus' disciples failed under his influence to distinguish between the sacred day and the secular act. I apologize for my voice tonight. I've been losing it through the day, having a cold. But uh, listen in. Hopefully you can hear some of this. Distinguishing between the sacred and the secular. They had failed to realize, and this was the accusation, they had failed to realize the sacred must be kept separate from the secular. Okay, this is what the accusation is. The secular, however appropriate and proper it may be, must be left when entering into the sacred arenas. This was the criticism. So the question is this. Here's these men going through the cornfield. The accusation is it's the Sabbath day. You can't do this. You've got to keep that separate from eating and gathering this corn. Is this true for the Christian? Is it true for the Christian life that we need to keep the sacred and the secular separate in our lives? This morning in the teen class, I, I put these two words up on the board, sacred and secular. And I went through some <clears throat> things that we do. And I said, help me understand which one is sacred and which one is secular. So we talked about church. Which one would you put church under? Well, sacred, right? And we talked about going to work, like a job. <clears throat> and that would be obviously under secular in our minds. And we mentioned all kinds of stuff. What about eating? Eating lunch or eating supper? Which one would you put that under? Secular, okay. Well, what about singing hymns? Sacred, okay. Uh, what, what about um, coming to the men's challenge, men's rally, and praying with other men? Sacred, okay. Uh, what about shopping at Walmart? Secular, okay, okay. Y'all are doing great. You're, you're making my illustration, okay? Some of you know where I'm going. Is it true, is it true that in the Christian life, we are to put a wall between these two things? That... Some of our life is sacred, and some of our life is secular. Because the devil would love for us to believe that. And I'm afraid that's part of the problem in church today. We compartmentalize things. This is my sacred life. This is my secular life. This is a church attendance. That's sacred. Yeah, going to church, make sure I'm at church. That's important. But that's in the sacred realm. But then Monday I go to work. And that doesn't have anything to do with the sacred part of my life, right? That's the secular part. And that's really what the, the Pharisees are saying here. You can't mix these things. Is picking corn when I'm hungry a secular activity or a sacred activity? For the child of God, and here's the point, we're going to delve into this more next week. For the child of God, everything's sacred. The whole life is sacred. Everything we do. Somebody said that everywhere you are, which I could find the actual quote, Whatever you are on is an altar. Whatever you are on is an altar. Is that true for me tonight? Whatever you're doing, we are living sacrifices. You are offering your life up to God in whatever you're doing. And it's all a matter of the heart and the matter of thinking, isn't it? It's all a matter of my perspective in my heart and in my thinking. Again, I'm quoting G. Campbell Morgan a couple of times. I'm here tonight. 
Man is sacred in all his being. Sacred not merely in his spiritual nature, but sacred as certainly in his moral and mental capacities, and sacred also in his physical life. You know, you can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of your job, right? You can make an idol out of a talent that you have. You know, you can make an idol out of church. You can make an idol out of the Bible. That sounds weird, doesn't it? You can make an idol out of a pastor. You can make an idol out of the way you look. We can make idols and we can sin in any area and in any way. But everything in the Christian life is to be sacred. Not have this wall of separation, this wall of division between the sacred and the secular. So let's end with this. Where do we stand tonight? Let's think about these three things that we've hit this evening. Where are we when it comes to being a friend of sinners? Where are we tonight as they accuse Jesus in our joyfulness? And where are we tonight in our lives? This is a wonderful thing to think about, this particular point, as we enter into 2019. As we make our resolutions or whatever it is that we do. As we come into a new year if we really are thinking about our entire life as being a sacred act to God. Let me put this verse up and we're done. Whether therefore ye what? Eat or drink. Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to eat some supper. Amen? And you know what I want? I want that supper tonight to be just as sacred of an act as when we gathered together and sang hymns a little bit ago in this church. Is that possible? How does that work? It's all in my mentality. It's all in my heart attitude. It's all in gratitude to God. It's all in the way I express to my children and my wife about the food that we're eating. It's all in being thankful that I can actually have this amount of food to nourish my body and take care of myself physically. That is a sacred act. To God. I want that to be the same thing as being standing in this pulpit speaking to you. What you say, well, that's a sacred act. He's up there preaching. Well, I think it is a sacred act. I hope it is. Now, I may want some of you to do that one day. But I want tomorrow when I wake up on Monday, we're having some guests over tomorrow. I want that to be a sacred act in the way I treat them, in the way that we clean our house. I want that to be sacred in my life. Amen? All of this goes together. You know, just because you walk through the doors of a church doesn't mean it's a sacred act. Just because we came tonight doesn't make it a sacred act. There could be somebody sitting over here in a church service who is worshiping God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind. They're having a wonderful time in a sacred relationship with God in this building, in a pew over here, while there's a, somebody else sitting over here who might as well be at the local bar in the way that they're treating the Lord and the way that their attitude is, right? The place doesn't make, it doesn't matter. Where are we with God? And we can be sitting somewhere in our home. We can be walking through Walmart, sitting in a car, just as sacred as sitting in a pew in a church. Now, all these things are important, <clears throat> and again, we'll, we'll pick it up here next week, but may God help us to see the lessons Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees and trying to teach us.
trying to teach us tonight. Lord, we thank you for your blessings to us as we come into this new year. I pray you'll help us like never before. Lord, in the opportunities that you give us to be a friend of sinners, as Jesus was, help us, Lord, to have the joy of the Lord in our hearts, and may that be our strength. Lord, help us to be sacred people of God. Help us, Lord, not to put that division in our own minds and hearts. Lord, maybe we aren't even have been aware. Lord, may our lives be an offering and an altar to you on Sunday as well as Monday. Lord, I pray that you help us. Help us to learn from our Savior and from our Master. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If we can help you tonight, we're going to have a, a business meeting real quick. We can help you tonight.